You're listening to Liberty Buzzard with Dustin Hammett and Thomas Umstead Jr. Episode 21. I'm Dustin Hammett. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr. And today we're going to talk about, uh, well, we started talking about Amazon. I told Thomas to hit the record button because it started to be an interesting conversation. We were talking about Audible.com and the hundreds of millions of dollars that I pour into personally, that I pour into their coffers every single month uh, from my book purchases. And I think uh, Thomas is right there with me. And yeah, I think over the last 10 years, I've purchased somewhere between 600 and 700 books. And if we say that those books cost $10 each, uh, that's 6000 to $7,000 that I spent on my audiobook collection over the last 10 years. Small price to pay. It's almost the, it's almost the cost of a semester at college. Yeah, and I've gotten probably eight semesters of college worth of education with all that time. So I feel like it was a money well spent. All you're missing is the pretty piece of paper on your wall. That's right. We are not sponsored by Audible, by the way. We're sponsored by the one and only Tom Umstadt CPA. Tom has over 35 years of experience helping people like you pay only their fair share in taxes. Don't let the IRS stress you out. Find out how you can get Tom and his team on your team at TaxBanTom.com. Dot com. So uh, Dustin was wanting to invest in Audible because you know there's a good rule of thumb that uh, invest in the companies that you purchase from and use yourself as a case study. But the problem with Audible is that they are wholly owned by Amazon, which owns everything. They You're like, oh, well, let's just buy Whole Foods. And you're like, oh, which Whole Foods do you want to buy? And they're like, oh, no, we want to buy all of them. It's like, oh, okay, you're going to do a stock exchange or save up some money? No, we'll just buy them with cash flow from one quarter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bezos is an evil, evil genius, and I uh, simultaneously hate and love him. Um, and Thomas informed me today that he is now the richest man in the world, and what you say, Thomas, uh, in history? In the history of the world, in terms of the modern world. So, so it's hard to compare to, like, Genghis Khan, right? So we're not comparing him to, like, the ancient conquerors, but of, like, modern-day... Uh, you know, modern era, dollar-denominated wealthy people. He is supposedly the wealthiest ever. So would it be fair to say that uh, Croesus was as rich as Jeff Bezos? <laughs> Croesus was as rich as Jeff Bezos. Now, I will say there's another way to measure it, and that is your income as a percentage of GDP. And I think John D. Rockefeller will probably always have the record there because I think at the peak, his income was 5% of America's gross domestic product. So for every dollar that any American made... Or no, out of a hundred dollars that any American made, uh, he made five of those. I'm gonna have to pull up a list of co- or countries that uh, Bezos now has more wealth than their gross domestic gross domestic product. It, it's probably quite a few of them. Yeah. And and the reason why he's been so wealthy and is that he has this just insatiable long term view. So Amazon uh, made a goal of not making a profit for the first several years. In fact, I remember. I don't know, in the early 2000s or late 90s, they had a profitable day. And he like had a press conference and apologized to the shareholders for their profitable day. And he's like, we aren't doing enough to grow fast enough. We'll do better. We won't be profitable in the future. Well, they're having quite a few profitable days now, and they're making billions and billions of dollars. But the secret, the other secret, is that they don't actually make money selling stuff. Their goal with Amazon.com is to break even. And the, kind of the surprise is that lately they've actually been making money off the website. But the real engine of their profits has been in selling their technology and infrastructure to other companies because uh, they spend all of this money building uh, server farms and creating software, and they're able to sell that at super high margins to other companies. So they have Amazon Prime Video, but when you watch Netflix, do you know whose computers Netflix runs on? 
I'm going to guess Amazon. Amazon's computer. Oh. So you're either watching Amazon Prime or you're watching Amazon Prime. So if you don't want your money to go to Amazon Prime, there's no way to do it because they own all of the computers. I'm going to have to start pledging allegiance to Amazon. <laughs> I am a uh, willing Amazon uh, constituent and citizen of the Amazon. I pretty much purchase everything I can from them because I hate going to the store. And it's just so much easier to buy Christmas gifts in my underwear. Um, and you offend people when you buy Christmas gifts in your underwear and you go to the mall like that. And Not at Walmart, though. It's totally cool at Walmart. <laughs> that's true. That's, a, that's different. Oh, man. They, they, I, I, we register on Amazon for our wedding. We registered on Amazon for our baby. And one of the things we've realized is that there is a certain kind of person who will go to a store and buy something at full price and turn around and sell it on Amazon at a markup. And we've had to learn to be careful of these things because on a baby registry, you're not super sensitive on price. And oftentimes something is $10 on Amazon when you could get it at Walmart or HEB for $2 or $3. And somebody's literally going to Walmart and buying the thing and then reselling it on Amazon. And so like all Ikea products, for instance, it's just some dude going to Ikea and buying a Hemnes bookshelf and then reselling it on Amazon with a markup. And so not everything is cheaper on Amazon. If you don't see the price to line through it, be very, very careful. You may be paying way too much. Well, I have to kind of commend the those uh, those Amazon arbitragers uh, for taking advantage of my laziness, and uh, because I think it's money well earned for them to go to IKEA, so I don't have to. <laughs> it's, I, I would really prefer not to go to IKEA ever. I hate go, that. Story. Going to IKEA is kind of like the medieval gauntlet that knights would run, where like if you could survive it, you'd marry the princess, but if you don't survive it, you're dead, right? It's like, but it's not just that in terms of like energy and working your way through the maze. It's also that in terms of like surviving with your marriage. So um, for <laughs> get us, a, ball at the end. a key part of our pre-marriage counseling with my, my wife and I is that while we were engaged, we went to IKEA and we had like a fight in every section. It was incredible and. And we were stronger for it by the end. Our our engagement survived IKEA, and it was the IKEA challenge. It's kind of like the Tide Pod challenge, but the IKEA challenge. Can you go to IKEA with your significant other and come out still together? Oh, it just makes me ill just thinking about it. I just prefer avoidance at all costs. Uh, I'm an IKEA avoider. Um, speaking of avoider, uh, I've been uh, avoiding Twitter a little bit more lately because a its addictive qualities are just insane. So you hashtag walked away from I, Twitter. I I hashtag <laughs> partially walked away on some days and I'm not so good on other days. Uh, but uh, I was looking on uh, the old the old Twitter verse the other day and I saw that old James Gunn, who is the director of um, Guardians of the Galaxy, was fired by Disney for old nasty quotes that he wrote. I'm, I probably even haven't read them, but uh, apparently the uh, conservative uh, commentator, uh, what's his name, Chernovich, resurfaced a bunch of old sophomoric uh, tweets that he tweeted and uh, is uh, brought him to the front, and Disney fired him for that. And it's an interesting age we live in. I tell my kids that uh, it's it's we we no longer live in an era where you can do something stupid and get past it. Especially if you do it online. If you do something stupid online, it's going to live with you for the rest of your days. And it's a really interesting time we live in. It's almost like there is no anonymity largely anymore, especially in the United States of America. It's, I think, why kids these days aren't on Twitter and aren't on Facebook. Instead, they use Snapchat where everything disappears after a period of time. So Snapchat like goes in and deletes all your stuff after a day or two. But does it really disappear? 
Well, it, it <laughs> I don't know, man. Maybe <laughs> the NSA keeps a copy, but it's not publicly available. So if like some regular person was trying to like attack you, they go to your Snapchat, they only see uh, the last 24 hours of your Snapchat. Whereas you can dig back on somebody's tweets. You know, I've been on Twitter for 10 years now. And who knows what I tweeted back in the day? I I certainly haven't looked at those. Tweets. <laughs> <laughs> I shudder to think at Thomas Umstead. By the way, if any of you uh, want to see some of Thomas's old tweets, maybe you can blackmail me. There may be some money. We're actually filming in front of a live studio audience, and one of our uh, audience members is raising his hand. You don't have a microphone, but you, uh, yeah. Uh, we have we have we have comments from the peanut gallery. Yeah. Well, just uh, on this whole like snapchat versus facebook thing i feel like i've got kind of a minority opinion where that's some the main reason i mean i'm only 22 so i'm kind of young to be on facebook but i love facebook because i love facebook because it never goes away so you've got this record of your life and so you can look back and see i love the facebook memories where it's like here's what you thought about and was important six years ago and that's really cool that we can be the first generation where my grandchildren can see what I was thought important and what I was struggling with and what I was like interested in when I was their age. And I feel like that's a perspective that humanity has that that's a perspective that humanity has never had in the past. And it's a scary, sure, but just don't post anything on Facebook that you're not willing to have your grandchildren say. Or see. Seemingly a simple rule, but like going on that, but you can also see what you had for dinner uh, on Wednesday night in October in 2005, which I think is important historical records. Why would you post that? So, <laughs> <laughs> what? That's a great question, William. Why would you post that? But we won't go further into that. Here's the what's interesting, though, is that we do have letters. Like, my grandmother has bundles of letters that she exchanged with my grandfather. And it's not like her grandkids are like falling all over themselves to read those letters. So uh, I, let's hope that your grandkids care what you had for lunch on Wednesday. But there's a very good chance that they don't. But here's what's scary, though, is that something that you posted that was totally benign in 2005 is considered racist or sexist or whatever other ist animalist, right? Like, oh, I was talking about hunting animals, and now that's considered to be a hate crime against animals. And that thing that was in the context of the culture when you posted it was okay is now considered like a fireable offense. That's what for me gets scary because the rules are changing so quickly, you know, between when Pepsi starts filming their commercial and when they actually release the commercial, it goes from being edgy and appropriate to the worst thing that you can possibly do in your entire life be tone deaf. <laughs> and then suddenly they have egg all over their faces. What's why like watching sitcoms from the seventies. I mean, um, I'm trying to think of the sitcoms from the 70s that, uh, I mean, just pick any sitcom from the 70s and the topics of conversation back then, which were considered well within cultural norms. Now, um, I mean, you, you, you wouldn't, Disney would fire you. <laughs> Disney would fire you in like five seconds if you said any of the things they said. And, uh, it's just, but you're right. It's, it's all within the frame of reference of the times and all that stuff follows you around and you will always be judged in the, the contemporary vice in the context of i mean just look at all the stuff that's going on with the confederate statues uh they're you know or let, let's go beyond that because that's a little more controversial i'm going to take something a little more mundane the statues and the memorabilia of the founding fathers uh of, of our of our nation some of whom were slaveholders and uh in the context of the times they were perfectly legitimate moral men in the context of today's time they're just terrible terrible people because of what they did so it's uh it's not an 
easy conversation, definitely. But one of the things that's made me sad is that with the um, Confederate statue taking down, which, to be fair, most of those were put up in the 1920s as a like or 1950s as a protest to equal rights. So it's not like they were really built to celebrate uh, Confederates. But with the pushback, the six flags of Texas have been taken down everywhere. And what, what and what's sad is that not only do they take down the Confederate flag, but they also take down the French flag and the Mexican flag and the Spanish flag and uh, the Texas flag. So often they'll just fly six American flags over Texas. And a lot of people don't realize that six flags, the amusement park, is based off the six flags over Texas that were the six different countries that ruled over Texas. And can I just say they were all terrible? Like, France was awful. Like, as a country, they are the worst. They conquered people. They killed people. They enslaved people. They, they, you know, guillotined people. They were awful. In Mexico. Made people eat frog legs. <laughs> their food, um, and, and Mexico, not great. Spain, really terrible. Like, they, you know, genocided whole, whole countries. And yet, it's the Confederates only. Like, every country has a bad, History, right? The American, Amer- the American flag. Americans had slaves. Texans had slaves. All six flags uh, have bad things in their history. Now, you could argue that the Confederate flag didn't have anything good, right? So, like the Spanish did good things too. The French did good things too. What good did the Confederacy uh, do? I was reading some notes of a um, ancestor of mine who was in Texas during the Confederacy and was complaining about what a terrible government the Confederates ran and how. And he was a merchant. You know, he's just trying to mind his own business. He Voted against the Confederacy, you know, Texas joining the Confederacy. In fact, he wrote an op-ed in the what was the proto version of the Austin American Statesman about why we shouldn't join the Confederacy. <clears throat> and he was complaining about how no one had any civil liberties. And if you said the wrong thing, you could get lynched. And all the good men were away at the war. And it was all a bunch of scallywags who were running the government. And I was like, well, gosh, this is a different perspective on the Confederacy than I've seen before. And I was like, what good did they do? So maybe that's an argument. But it does make me sad because that is our history. You know, we were, you know, we haven't been a state forever. And we were our own country for a long time. And I think it's important to remember our history. And I feel like the Six Flags of Texas are a way of remembering that history without honoring. You know, when we fly the Mexican flag, we're not necessarily doing it to honor the Mexican government and them trying to take our guns away. We do it to remember the Mexican government and the fact that we were once a part of Mexico. I think as uh, as someone who studies studies a lot of history, I think what bothers me the most um, is the fact that people, it it seems – I'm going to make a grand generalization here, but it seems that people want to forget history, which is absolutely the worst thing to do. Uh, because we all stand on the shoulders of giants. We all want to progress, and one of the ways to progress is to look at the past and what's happened in the past and to move past the past. And um, and you can't do that if, if, if you've forgotten everything that's happened. Um, I, I understand the arguments behind um, a lot of... A lot of what 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 the opposing parties is saying with removing Confederate statues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think you can go a bridge too far. I recently heard Thomas, and I have to go to the internet to confirm this: that um, novels like Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, which was hugely important to uh, the, the the free the slaves movement um, around the Civil War time, as well as some more contemporary uh, uh, writings. And I'm, I'm drawing a blank right now, like that that have some themes that are spoken of and, and some language that are spoken of in in the in the speech as it was at the time, which we now consider offensive. And they're completely being removed from the education system in the United States of America, which I think is a very, very dangerous thing to do. 
Um, and I think as someone who really appreciates history and I look at and I, and I speak to a lot of people today who have no clue about anything about, you know, history, it scares me. It really does scares me, scare me about, you know, I know Jimmy Kimmel and all those, all those types, you know, they love to do is a shtick where they go out and they interview people and they only show the dumbest ones where they ask them a, a very simple historical question. Um, but still, I think if a majority of Americans today had to take a basic citizenship te- test, I, I wonder how many would actually pass that test. If they, if you, if, if people could actually name, uh, the 10 minute, 10 amendments of the bill of rights, or if they even know what the bill of rights are, that stuff scares me because if you don't have a foundation in history and if you don't have a foundation of what our country is built off of, how can you expect improvement? That that's right, and uh, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn are also being edited oh, yeah. out, and the Mark Twain, and, Mark and Twain often books. because it uses you know language that we now see to be offensive, and I think that this is if you're trying to get if there's a word that's offensive, the way to make it to get rid of it is not to ban it because that gives the word power, uh, and there we as Americans are really good at taking offensive slurs and turning them around. So calling somebody a Yankee was once seen as a terrible insult. So a Yankee Doodle was an idiot dandy. You know, Yankee Doodle Dandy was this slur that the British had on Americans. And, you know, like, put a feather in his cap is because he couldn't afford a good uniform. And the only way that you could tell units apart was if somebody had a feather in his cap or not. And so what did we do? Did we ban the use of Yankee? And we're like, oh, don't call me a Yankee. I'm very offended. No, we took it on as a badge of honor. Like, yes, I'm proud to be a Yankee. And we turned it into a baseball team. <laughs> we turned it into a baseball team. We turned it into a silly song. And we took the power of that word away and um the lgbt community did the same thing with the word queer right so queer used to be this powerful slur it's like oh i'm gonna call you queer and it's this really terrible slur and what did they do they created tv shows queer eye for the straight guy and they used it amongst each other and they took the power of the name away and you know people nowadays are not that offended to be called a gringo they're like oh yeah i'm a gringo you know i'm you know you know don't know what i'm doing blah 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 and that that word doesn't have the power that it used to have but other words because they're being banned and because of you know you're not allowed to read a historical book that has it in it even if the historical book's whole point is to end slavery <laughs> so it's, you can't go and be like oh harry peter stowe you know she was terrible because she was trying to end slavery it's like i i don't know i don't see a problem with her trying to end slavery and trying to me- write a message to her um, community in a way that they'll understand it so that people are like yes slavery is is terrible and yet they're giving power to this word that i think that they could take the power away from if they were reacting in exactly the opposite way I try not to engage too much in hyperbole, but I see what's happening in our education system today in removing, in removing provocative thought and discussions about things that are provocative from our education system. I feel like um, we are sterilizing our culture. I feel like we are sterilizing our history, and it seems – once again, try not to gauge in hyperbole, but I'm going to go ahead and, and, and say what, what goes on in my head when I hear about this. It seems a lot like you know Fahrenheit 451, uh, where you get rid of the knowledge, you completely sterilize the knowledge in, a, in, a, in, in an attempt to uh, regain control over society. And I think there's a lot of danger there. Um, and that's what I get most concerned with. One of the things uh, when I said uh, history I find common with the totalitarian governments of old – and I'm talking about like the really early ones. So Egypt, China, is that it was very common for a new regime to purge any memory of the old regime. It's one of the reasons why we have a really hard time studying Egyptian history is that the 
custom of the time was the new pharaoh would come to power and he'd have all of the writings about the previous pharaoh burned uh, especially if they were rivals right if it was his dad it's okay but if i killed the previous pharaoh and started a new dynasty i want everyone to completely forget that previous pharaoh and i will say that this as a strategy not great for the egyptians the egyptians have not been able to run their own country for 2000 years so 2500 years almost they've been ruled by others when they were once super powerful and part of what caused that was a decline in the power of their country, not economic power. They were economically powerful for thousands of years after they stopped uh, being a political force, but they kind of fell prey to their own corruption and they failed to learn the lessons of history and they got judged by God. <laughs> so there's a whole book in the Bible of judgment against Egypt. And one of the judgments were, you'll never run your own country again. All so, those plagues and such. Yeah. So, you know, that, that didn't help. Right. Um, but they could have learned from their lesson if they had known history, like, Hey, maybe the Jews, Maybe we shouldn't pick on them. You know, we did that 700 years ago. It really ended bad for us. Oh, but we don't know that because we burned all of our history. So let's keep picking on the Jews. Like, don't do that. You could learn from this. And, you know, be careful when you deal with the Babylonians. And the Chinese, I'm not as familiar with Chinese history, but they did the same sort of thing of burning their history. And I feel like that's really scary. Now, I do think that there is a difference between remembering something and honoring something. So putting up a monument to a clan leader who was a part of the Confederacy, where he's standing all noble and he's looking to the south. You know, maybe that's not actually uh, remembering. That's honoring. And maybe that's making a political statement. Uh, but I would say don't tear down the monument. I'd say move it to a museum where it can be explained in context, which is what I really like about the Texas Capitol because it has all of these different monuments in like historical context. And you walk around the grounds of the Texas Capitol and you get the entire history of Texas. You know, there's, the, there's monuments to pioneer women and there's a monument to African-Americans that tells their whole story in this really powerful tableau. And yes, there's monuments to Confederates and the, the ones who died. And it's got a quote from Lee and there's a monument for the Spanish-American War, which most people don't even know we went to war with Spain, but it's because we beat them so badly that the war is not really what we're talking about. Uh, we kind of just accidentally conquered a whole empire, uh, which is fun. You should Google it sometimes, Spanish-American War. It's what created an empire. We had our own concentration camps at the end. It's uh, something we should maybe learn from. True. Uh, on the note of China, I'm recalling an anecdote that one of my uh, college history professors told me. Um, and I have to go back and actually do a little more research on this to actually prove it. But I remember this distinctly from uh, from from one of my classes, and it said, and the 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 professor put forward the statement that Japan, the introduction of firearms in Japan, uh, and I'm kind of pulling it out of my head here. I want to say it was around the 1500s, maybe earlier, somewhere around that time frame. Uh, firearms were introduced to Japan uh, from China right around that time. And they were gaining uh, wide acceptance, and the knowledge was gaining a foothold. And all of a sudden, there was a great battle. And the samurai and the noble nobility of Japan uh, started to realize that they were getting slaughtered by a bunch of peasants with firearms, and they didn't like that idea. They liked it a lot better when they sat on their horse and killed all the peasants and had no problem surviving. And so Japan, the, the, the nobility and the government of Japan went on a great purge and they found every firearm destroyed it. They found every man that know how to use a firearm and slaughtered them and any person that uh, had any inherent knowledge of firearms and they killed them. And they effectively for hundreds and hundreds of years wiped out uh, firearms and the knowledge of firearms from their society. And it was the only time uh, that this professor told me that um, a, a human race 
to his knowledge, actually forgot an invention uh, culturally. And uh, that stuck with me because they did not serve them well in the long term. <laughs> uh, and uh, obviously, you know, being a military guy, they uh, they, they were subsequently uh, not conquered, but they were – what's the best way to say it? They were subdued. There, there's a great podcast that just came out, uh, for those of you who don't listen to Hardcore History by Daniel Hannon. It's the most popular history podcast, and his most recent episode is specifically about Japan and uh, their history. And it is fascinating because they did exactly that. They kind of insulated themselves and they didn't um, have any encounters with any of the, you could almost call them intellectual contagions of the, you know, from about 500 to 2000, there was a major intellectual contagion every 50 to 100 years. You had enlightenment, you had communism, you had democracy. And Japan got all of them in one generation. (laughs) So when they finally opened up, they went from being like a, medieval feudal system to like a modern powerhouse in one generation and they it and they didn't have a time to metabolize all of these you know that we in the west had you know a hundred years to deal with the enlightenment right before we had you know protestantism or you know before we had communism right like they got them bang 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 it's kind of like when um we arrived in the new world with you know two or three or five thousand years of contagions that had swept the eurasian plateau right somebody sneezes with bubonic plague in china and five years later somebody's dying of that same bubonic plague in england but people in the new world didn't get it and they didn't get smallpox and they didn't get all of these other sicknesses. And so when somebody comes over, they have, you know, their ancestors spent, you know, centuries building up immunities to these sicknesses that the, the Native Americans didn't have. And they also didn't have germ theory. So there's often this blaming of the white man because he spread the germs. It's like, they didn't know what germs were. Nobody knew what germs were. They thought it was like spread in the air. Like, oh, I smell a foul smell and now I'm going to get bubonic plague. Like, humors. That's not, yeah, Ill, humors. Yeah, Oh, we need to bleed you. That's going to make you better. Like, don't blame these people. They had no idea what was going on. Uh, But the same thing happened with Japan, and it was very traumatic, right? They they didn't know how to handle it, and they became very, very aggressive very quickly. And that literally blew up in their face. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, yes, it did. Well, we want to know what you think. So uh, drop us a line. Uh, Send us an email. Or tweet to us. Just make sure it's clean because, you know, you don't want to be found out later. I'm Dustin Hammett. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr. And you've been listening to Liberty Buzzard. <laughs>